0: So, by way of, of a quick little segue, we are wrapping up our, a series that we began a few weeks ago that I've simply entitled Nothing Ordinary, which is really just a picture of how God uses kind of flawed and messed up, broken people, both in Scripture and in our world today, to impact the worlds around them, to impact the lives of people. And we've examined people in Scripture that were messed up and flawed and broken. And we looked at people in our lives in our world today that are finding the ability to be used by God in whatever situation setting they were in. And we're going to be doing that exact same thing this morning as we kind of explore this idea that when, when God calls us to a radical life, there's nothing ordinary about that. You know, as I've been looking over this series and I've been investigating lives of people in Scripture, and not just the well-known people, you know, Moses and and, and Peter, but really looking at the lives of individual people, like the blind beggar, and, and the people in Scripture we don't spend much kind of time focusing on, the calling of the, the disciples that you've never heard of. And I've been looking at these people's lives, and, and I've been lo- watching these sort of video series that we've been kind of going through at the end of our messages, and I've been really convicted. I've been really convicted about... Really about the idea of circumstances. And here's what I mean. I, I'm super convicted about people that are willing to say yes to Jesus. I mean, to follow Him wherever. I mean, I want to be that person. But, I, but I'm really convicted because the people that we've looked at in Scripture and the people that we've looked at through this little video series we're using were people whose circumstances weren't perfect. Yet Jesus was calling them to follow Him. And they were willing in, in imperfect circumstances, in the middle of difficulty and unknown to follow, to leave, to proclaim, to speak, to give, to do whatever it would take to put their feet in the footsteps of Christ. And the reason that's convicting for me is because I am incredibly willing to follow Jesus as long as a situation is easy, is known, or makes sense. But the moment that life gets really complicated and begins to go in a trajectory the exact opposite of what God is calling me to, well, then things get really interesting. And then all of a sudden, my life kind of gets thrown into a little bit of a tailspin. I mean, what happens when I feel like God is leading me this direction, I make these decisions and these moves, and it seems like in every corner something else is happening that's standing in the way? Am I willing willing to follow Jesus in difficult circumstances? And not just circumstances that are like, oh, this is really hard, but circumstances that require all of me to trust all that God is. Because what we're seeing in Scripture is that these ordinary, flawed, broken, messed up kind of ragtag people were put in circumstances that weren't perfect. It wasn't like God carved out this incredible path and said, listen, if you follow me, nothing will go wrong. If you follow me, I will give you every answer to every struggle, to every hurt, to every need that you will ever have, and I will let you know in advance. But when Jesus called these broken, messed up, flawed, ordinary individuals... They put their lives in total trust and they followed him, even in the most difficult of circumstances. I listen to Barbara talk about our friends in China, and I realize that their faith in Christ, putting their faith in Jesus Christ and following him, is anything less than ideal. In fact, from a worldly standpoint, everything about their life should point in a different direction. Yet for me, I mean, my faith is, and my, my relationship with Christ is. Well, it's so socially driven that it's easy to follow Christ when the circumstances work out. But what happens when the circumstances are less than perfect, when they're less than ordinary? Well, then what happens? See, I believe one of the ultimate questions for any of us as followers of Christ, for you and for me, is are we willing to follow Jesus when the circumstances aren't easy, when there are no answers, and when the path is really, really unclear? Are we willing to follow Christ when we know that he is calling us in the exact opposite direction that we really want to go? See, I believe that's one of the ultimate questions that we have to deal with. But we've created such a a Christian subculture that is sort of so moved by the ordinary and the easy that when we face opposition, we're so quick to say, well, God's shutting that door. Well, if you look at Scripture... When these people followed Christ, they faced opposition at every corner, yet they continued to plow through, following Jesus. And what I'm convicted about, what we're going to look at this morning, is that opposition in your life, struggle in your life, is not necessarily, right, not necessarily God saying, it's too hard, don't go. Maybe God is leading you into a circumstance that's difficult because he wants to use you in a radical, radical way. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at a few folks, both in our life and in Scripture, that I believe God calls into circumstances that are incredibly difficult. And not not just because the circumstances are difficult, because He wants to use them in the middle of it. As we examine, what would it look like if I said yes to Jesus, and walked into the middle of life, into the middle of circumstances, said, as hard as this is, I will say yes to you at any cost. So this morning we're going to be in the Book of Acts, chapter sixteen. If you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and flip there. We don't have the text printed uh, because we use the back of your bulletin this morning for church in the park. But if you've got a Bible, go ahead and get there, um, and uh, and we're going to start off in the middle of that in verse twenty five. But uh, we'll pray, and then I want to give you a little bit of background so that we can understand really where where we're headed this morning as we kind of uh, explore this text together. So let's take a moment before we open God's Word, and let's just let's just pray. Lord, the truth is, is that you are God. You are ultimately in control of everything. God, I believe that you are sovereign, that you are all-powerful and all-knowing. There is nothing beyond your control and your understanding. And Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would speak to each of our hearts right where we are. That, Father, these words would be your words and your words alone, and that, God, you would penetrate our heart to meet with you. Take just a moment and just ask God to move in your life this morning. Ask him to convict you. It's a kind of a dangerous prayer, but I invite you to pray. Just, God, convict me. Convict me. Pray for someone beside you, someone you're with, someone you saw, someone who's two rows over. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in their life this morning. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified as we open your word. God, an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, God, we turn this morning over to you and ask you to move and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I find is that all too often as Christians, we don't pray for conviction. We just, we pray that God would speak to us and teach us something. And we all like to hear things that we say, wow, that was really good. But very few of us really like to be convicted because being convicted means that God is looking at things in our life, saying, I want to alter that. I want to change that. Because conviction comes in the face of whatever it is that we're doing. So if we're doing something, we're thinking something, we're living a certain way, and we're convicted, it's usually because God wants to alter that trajectory. And anytime time we alter the trajectory of the things that we're comfortable with, it gets very uncomfortable. And I think we should be constantly, as believers, praying for conviction. God, show me the areas in my life that you want to alter and change. If we're showing up at church every single week, and, and we're hearing God's Word, and we're opening God's Word, and we're never experiencing conviction we've got to question our own relationships with Christ, because the truth is, not one of us is living this thing totally correctly. So, I think we should be in the habit of praying for conviction, just a little side note. So, okay, Acts 16 is really interesting, okay, because it's kind of a famous story, but it's also one of those stories that we've kind of, have kind of glanced over, and we've kind of maybe lifted up in Sunday school classes, but we don't spend a lot of time talking about. I'm going to give you a quick little background so that you understand where we are, and then we're going to take off in verse 25. Now, Paul is on a a missionary journey, and we know that he makes a lot of these missionary journeys all over Greece and Macedonia and all kinds of areas to go and share the gospel with people that have never heard. Well, this one journey in particular was taking him to a town called Thessalonica, all right, and he was traveling with a guy by the name of Silas. Now, we don't know much about Silas. We know he was an early church leader, and that's kind of about all we know. And Paul and Silas are on this journey, and they're in Thessalonica, and they're going to this place where people gather to pray. Most likely a uh, kind of a city center where the Jewish people in the town would gather and where they would pray. And Paul knew that he would find a whole bunch of people. And so he and Silas are heading into the center of this kind of uh, area where people pray. And there's this girl that begins to follow him. Turns out that she's actually a slave girl. She's a slave and she's following Paul and Silas. And it becomes known that this girl has a spirit or a demon that allows her to tell fortune or tell the future. And she's making a whole lot of money for the people that actually she belongs to or that own her. So the, the couple that owns her has this slave girl, and she's got this spirit in her, this demon that is allowing her to predict or say the future. And she's making a fortune. Well, this girl begins to follow Paul and Silas around, and she begins to shout, you know, that they, these guys, are the sons of the Most High God, right? And that they are showing people the way to be saved. And that's what she's shouting. And she would follow them around for days, shouting the exact same things. That these guys come in the name of the Most High God, and they are showing people the way to be saved. And she's doing it over and over and over and over again. And in and, and those verses, it says that it went on for days, <clears throat> I mean, days. I mean, imagine someone following you around at work, shouting, you know, shouting anything at that point in time. You know, going, this is Trev. He went to Texas Tech. He's great. I mean, over and over again, whatever. Just eventually it's going to get really old, even if it's true. Right? So two days later, Paul stops her, right? And he's just troubled, and he looks at her, and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, and he casts that spirit out. He says, immediately the spirit left her. Well, when the people that owned this slave girl, Realized that 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 their opportunity to make money was gone they were furious furious because now all of a sudden they had this sort of novelty right they could take around town and she would say things about the future they make a bunch of money and now she's nothing i mean she she wasn't able to do that for them and they were furious and so they seized paul and silas they literally grabbed them and drugged them to the city center right in the middle of town And they got the magistrates, the kind of people in charge of the city, and they accused Paul and Silas of causing all kinds of ruckus, right? Because what was approved by Roman rule really at the time was Judaism, but what was not approved was Christianity. And so what they were saying was, these guys are causing an uproar by challenging the very belief system that you've approved. Well, so the city magistrates and the crowd starts kind of jumping in on, him, and the crowd's shouting to have them seized, and this mob mentality is forming. So they take Paul and Silas, right, and they throw them into jail. They actually have them severely beaten first, flogged and thrown into jail. And the jailer is told, right The jailer's told, "Make them secure. Do not let them escape." So the jailer takes these two beaten, flogged, and the word there that's used in the Greek is the exact same word that's used for the beating that Jesus took before he was crucified. So we're not talking about, you know, a slap on the wrist. We're talking about a severe beating. Put in jail, and the jailer has told them to make them secure. So he puts shackles on their feet and hands, locks them in the inner cell, right? And then for the night until they're going to face trial the next morning. So we're going to pick up in verse 25, because this is where we're going to find Paul and Silas locked in jail. Locked in jail, shackled to the, to, the, uh, to the wall, beaten, beaten beyond belief. All right, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights and he rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he then brought them out and he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, and then immediately he and his family were baptized. The jailer brought them to his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Paul and Silas, beaten, chained to the wall in the middle of the night, dark. And they're singing praise and hymns to God. And the other prisoners are listening on. They're in the middle of this thing, and they are singing, and they are shouting, and they are praying, and the other prisoners are listening. And an earthquake, a violent earthquake happens. And that earthquake shakes the very foundation so that all the prison doors come open, and everybody's shackles are free, right? So now you've got a bunch of prisoners with open doors and no shackles on their wrists, Right, And these are not, well, outside of Paul and Silas, we're guessing that the rest of them are pretty hardened criminals. I mean, they're in jail for a reason. I know everybody in jail is always innocent, but the reality is that these are criminals. And all of a sudden, your shackles are there, and your doors are open, and you are free. And so the first thing you're going to do is bolt for the door. And the jailer himself, the guy that's in charge of this very prison, right, this very city jail, woke up. And when he realized that all the prison doors were open, he drew his sword to kill himself. And here's why. Because if a, if a person was put uh, literally in jail and he was put in the custody of the jailer, if that person escaped, the jailer, by ancient law, had to atone for that life with his own. So if that person wasn't found, he then had to take his place. But now if the whole prison escaped, the disgrace that he would go through, for in his own mind, it was easier just to die. And so he drew his sword, thinking everyone was going to be fleeing, and he was going to be left trying to explain to all of his bosses that the entire jail was open. I mean, how do you explain that? All the doors are open, all the shackles are off. I mean, someone had to let him go. An earthquake doesn't do that. So he was ready to die. Takes his sword, he's about to thrust it into his stomach, literally. And and Paul shouts out, hey, don't kill yourself. We're all still here. Every one of them still here. Well, the jailer gets up, and he says that he throws himself at their feet, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're saved. And it says that he he went and got his entire household, and they heard the word of the Lord. I mean, Paul and Silas sat there and shared the word of the Lord with this jailer, and his entire household came to know Christ, and they were baptized. He took care of their wounds, he took them back to his house, and he fed them. And that last little sentence that we read says that he was filled with great joy because he and his entire house had come to know God. You know, as I think about this story, the idea of circumstance is just just so prevalent because there's some really powerful things that I think speak to this kind of conviction I've been having about my own circumstance and the ease of my own circumstance and, and my difficulty in following Christ when circumstances are really hard. And I want to look for just a minute at Paul and Silas, and then I want to look for just a minute at the jailer, because I think there's something we can walk away with from both of these kind of sets of characters. But Paul and Silas are pretty ordinary people. I mean, Paul was kind of a big deal in Jewish circles before he came to know Christ. But really from a Christian standpoint, Paul was kind of a mess. I mean, he was was a persecutor, right? He was the guy that went around arresting Christians, throwing them in jail. He was standing present when the stoning of Stephen happened. I mean, He was less than an ordinary person that that you would think God would want to use to further his kingdom. And we know Silas. We don't really know much about him except for the fact he's mentioned like three times in Scripture. And usually it's as Paul's partner. I mean, he just kind of went around. We don't really know. He's not one of the names that we use as some kind of superhero. We just know that he was a leader in the church. I mean, these are ordinary people. But, But they saw the world really different. And this is a theme that we continually come back to here is how do we see the world? I mean, I find a couple of things extraordinary. The first one is is one that I've mentioned before and I think really bears mentioning again, and that is in the middle of this difficult circumstance, we find Paul and Silas praising God. I mean, we've talked about hard circumstances here before, but I'm willing to bet that none of us have been in a circumstance like this, where we have been wrongfully accused, severely flogged and beaten to the point where all the skin was ripped clean off your back, and then imprisoned as a Roman citizen wrongfully, shackled to a wall in the inner, kind of in the inner cell of a prison. And at midnight, we find them singing praise and praying to God. I mean, I don't know about you, but this is exactly how I would respond to God. God, you called me on that road to Damascus. I remember I was walking there and you knocked me down and you told me to follow you. And I followed you. And I had all this life set up for myself, and I followed you, and you've led me down this road. And this road has led me to prison, and this low road has led me to being beaten. Where are you? I would be praying like crazy that God would deliver me and that God would show Himself to me because He owed me something. I mean, I gave you my life, and you led me to prison, and you led me to beatings. I mean, this is less than ideal. It's not the very romantic idea of sort of the missionary picture that we think of where you go to a foreign country and and hundreds of kids are coming to know Christ and you're feeding orphans and everybody loves you. I mean, this is locked in jail, beaten and abandoned. Yet we find Paul and Silas singing in such a loud way that all the prisoners are listening on. It doesn't seem like a very great moment to find time to praise God. Seems like a moment where we'd say, God, where are you? But Paul and Silas, in the middle of this crazy circumstance, begin to praise God. They begin to to celebrate and find joy. And God shows up in a really remarkable way, doesn't he? I mean, God shows up in this earthquake. I mean, what's really cool about that is that God could have shown up in any number of ways, but he showed up in this, this massive way to the point where, I mean, doors are open and shackles fall off. And if you're Paul or you're Silas or you're me, here's what I'm thinking. I am out of here, man. God, you answered my prayer. You showed up in an amazing way. I mean, what a way to see your presence and the doors fly open and I would be taking off. I mean, God just delivered me from being in jail. This was God's answer to my prayer. God, I'm stuck in jail and I'm beaten and I'm shackled and I'm praying that you would deliver me and you did. And as Paul and Silas begin to step out of that jail cell, they look over and here's this jailer with his sword drawn about to take his life. Now I don't know about you. I don't know about you. But I know I'd have a pretty serious dilemma. Because this jailer most likely was the one that actually beat Paul and Silas. Or at least was standing there when it took place. So you see this guy who was a part of the whole problem. And you've been given your freedom, or at least that's what it looks like. Yet Paul and Silas have this sort of deep kind of care for people. They sort of see the world Je- the way Jesus saw it. And so Paul says, wait, don't do that. And they go over to him and he says, look, we're all here. We're all here. mean, they passed on their freedom, right, because they saw the life of this jailer. And what does he do? Man, he falls on his face and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I mean, what an amazing question. What must I do to be saved? Not, why did this happen or tell me about this earthquake. I mean, what must I do to be saved? Because he certainly knew why Paul and Silas were in jail. I mean, the little slave girl had been pronouncing it for two days. Yet they cared more about him than they did their very lives. And then they recognized the opportunity. And I really love this, and I find it so remarkable because... They recognized the opportunity to share the gospel with this jailer and his whole household was more important than their own comfort and their own freedom. So what do they do? Instead of saying, hey, we'll come back and tell you tomorrow, we're out of here. We see Paul flee in towns all the time. It's not like he just kind of stuck around all the time. But he saw the opportunity in the life of this jailer. What must I do to be saved? And Paul recognized that question was real. And so he shared the gospel with him and his entire household. They all came to know Christ. And I find this really powerful because I mean, in my life, I'm so concerned with my circumstances and the struggles that I have that I very seldom open my eyes to see the world around me. I'm more frustrated that I got a flat tire than I am about the fact that, well, just maybe the mechanic that, that God sent me was an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. Or I'm more frustrated about my own circumstance or illness or whatever, and I fail to see the opportunity that's right next to me. Here's what I think. What if, and what if, God allowed Paul and Silas and led Paul and Silas to be beaten and imprisoned so that they could share the gospel with one person? We'll talk about a difficult circumstance. But see, Paul and Silas saw the opportunity. It wasn't about them. What if the struggles that you're having, the issues, are not really about the issues or the struggles? What if they're about the opportunity to impact the lives of people around you? What if instead of being so frustrated about what's just transpired, we begin to look at the opportunity God's placed in front of us? Okay, so God, maybe, just maybe, you've allowed me to walk through these things so that I could encounter the life of this one person. If we really look closely at our lives and our circumstances, we'll realize that God is at work way deeper than we'd ever care to admit. And this whole life is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about my comfortable circumstances and surroundings, but it's about saying, God, what if, and just what if, you are leading me through this struggle so that I can be an instrument for you. See, what I think Paul and Silas recognized when they were in prison was this was about Jesus and not about them. And this is why I'm so convicted is because this whole world revolves around me, at least in my mind. But what if we all recognized that it that wasn't really true, and that just maybe as followers of Christ, what God was leading us into, were to actually see the lives of people around us? What if you opened your eyes next time you were in line at the bank? What if you introduced yourself to your waitress or your waiter the next time you were eating out and actually listened to part of their life? What if the entire reason that you were led down a certain path was so that you could share your story with somebody else? About your broken relationship, your broken heart, your severe struggle, your illness. And I'm not saying that, that that's why these things happen. I'm just saying, what if God was going to be able to and could redeem that to change the world? We've got this jailer over here who recognized his own deep need, right? I mean, what's his response? Not have mercy on me and save me. It's, it's how do I meet this Jesus? He recognized that he was lost. And they've been going about this world, his own path, in his own way. But what I really find remarkable about this jailer is that at the very end of that verse, 20, whatever it is, 32 or 4, he says that he was filled with great joy because he and his entire house had come to know Lord. Guess what? This jailer's circumstances hadn't changed. All the doors were still open, right? Paul and Silas were now at his house. He was feeding them, and he was taking care of their wounds. But I guarantee you all those other criminals, they're probably gone. I mean, they hung around for a little while. We're all here until Paul turns his back, and then we're out of here. The reality of his circumstances was the same. All those jail doors were still open, and, and guess what? He was in a lot more trouble now because he had just taken two of the prisoners, and he had taken them into his house, and he had doctored their wounds, and he had fed them. Yet at one moment, in the matter of a single night, he went from willing and a desire to take his own life, being totally and utterly hopeless, to finding a life that is overwhelmed with joy this is the picture of the gospel at one moment utterly and totally overwhelmed with hopelessness in this world yet Jesus Christ flips all of that over circumstances haven't changed he's still the jailer prisoners are still escape he's actually in more trouble than he probably would have been circumstances stayed the same what changed was well, heart changed and he went from hopelessness to joy See, whatever struggle or situation you're in, whatever circumstance you're in, we always think the circumstance changing is going to be the answer. If our circumstances will change, then I'll find joy. If my circumstances will change, then I'll have hope. It's not about circumstances. It's about Jesus. It's about your perspective. Circumstances are always going to be difficult and hard. I mean, that's just the way life is. But how do you see your life in the middle of those circumstances is what flips our kind of picture upside down? You think this is just for Bible people? I mean, how you see your circumstance? I want you to take a look at this video, and I want you to think about how you see the world, and how you see the picture of what it means to truly live for Christ in the middle of whatever your circumstance is. Let's take a look at this.
1: For more than 20 years, Obama, my homeland, has been in a civil war. Most of the men are forced into either slave labor or the army. So, 17 years ago, my family and I fled Burma, along with 2 million other people, and came to Thailand. The Thai government allows us to live here, but we are not considered citizens. My name is Pichui. I'm 30 years old. My wife's name is Jane, and my son's name is Big. When I first became a Christian, my parents were very upset because they are Buddhists. They sent me a letter asking me to quit being a Christian. They felt I disrespect them and betrayed the family. This makes me very sad. But I know that God is with me and looks over me. Because I know God, I'm happy. I'm at peace. Since we are not Thai citizens, it is sometimes difficult trying to find work. But God has a plan for us and has provided a job doing constructions on a new housing development. In the beginning, I didn't know much how to do the job. So I pray and I ask God to give me the ability. My coworkers all know that I'm a Christian. Some of them make fun of me, mock me, calling me Jesus because I'm not Buddhist anymore. It doesn't matter what they call me. I just do my job. I'm honest and work as hard as I can. And I know the boss will see the quality of my work. I see my job as a chance to serve God, not myself. Because we are not citizens, we are unable to stay in the same place for very long. Today, we are told we had to move out of our home. We have been given 24 hours to pack up all our things and then tear down our shelters. This happens often. We are forced to move so a new housing development can be built. We have gotten used to moving, but it is still very hard. We just accept it. It's the only way to survive. I like in the Bible where it says to trust and to obey God. And he will take care of and protect you. And he will give you new life. I like that. And whatever happens, I don't worry. Because I know that God is with us and we are with him. Hopefully one day... We will return home but whether we are in Thailand or Burma we know we are citizens of heaven we are citizens of God's kingdom
0: you know the, uh, the reality of our lives is that our circumstances well, the changing of our circumstances isn't the answer. The answer is our perspective in the middle of them. Whether we are here or 5,000 miles away, how do you see the opportunities that God is calling you into? Do you see them as moments to be able to say, God, I can glorify you and I can, I can be a part of what you're doing? Do we look for the lives of people that we can intersect? Or are we so quick and have such a desire to change our circumstances that we miss the opportunity that God has stuck right in front of us? As we close our time this morning in worship, I want to challenge you. I want you to say, God, I want you to convict me, to flip my heart around and and show me that in the middle of whatever circumstance I'm in, work, relationship, struggle, whatever, to look for the lives of people. Because it's not my circumstances that will change. Instead, it's how I see you and how I desire to be used in the middle of them. Let's pray.